is part two of the live episode that was recorded at the uh, CPA Small Practitioners Forum in Banff, Alberta a few days ago. If you have not yet listened to the first part of, uh, of this uh, series, then I suggest you pop back to episode 10. You can listen to the introduction where I gave a bit of information about the purpose of the conference and an overall discussion of what we were trying to convey in this presentation. Uh, my special guest, Yoss Herman, and I are back for another episode here. This is the second part of our presentation. We are going to be talking about shareholders agreements, corporate-owned life insurance, a bit of a discussion on joint ownership of land, joint ownership of bank accounts, beneficiary designations, all that good stuff. And I'm not going to repeat all the introductions and all the fancy stuff, um, which I did in the first uh, part of this uh, this series. So check back to the beginning of episode 10 for a bit more details. Otherwise, we're going to dive right in. You're going to hear the audience. You're going to hear the excitement. And man, it was fun to record live. It's going to be hard to go back to recording with just the computer screen. I'm going to have to put on like a laugh track or like a clap track just so we can feel like we're a part of something. <laughs> anyway, I hope you're enjoying this series. Um, without further ado, on to the episode. We'll, we'll maybe move to, I feel like this is disjointed, but we're really trying to capture topics today. Yeah. Um, topics that you're hearing a lot. So the next topic we want to cover is shareholder agreements, which is not, I can't even figure out a way to segue from trust to shareholders agreements, so I'm not going to. I can. Okay, okay go, yeah, okay, go, okay, go ahead. Okay, so. <laughs> this will be good. Yeah, no, this will be good. <laughs> Because I think when we were having our discussion, I said, well, like, if, if you've got these, we'll start with the estate freeze, because we've got, that's normally our classic tool. Okay, well, in the estate freeze, you're going to have a trust, probably. And then when you think about these entrepreneurial kids and these having corporations and things like that, people go, well, you know, I've got this corporation. You know, him and I are mm. brother, sister, whatever it is. And then they figure that they don't need a shareholder agreement. Mm -hmm. How many times have mm -hmm. you seen those situations where it's two brothers, whatever these two family members are, or whatever, the friends, do you have a shareholder agreement? No. Why? And then that sort of just starts the discussion. That's a very good segue. I think you deserve some Smarties. Ooh. We have Smarties up here right now, <laughs> um, in yeah. case we're feeling not smart partway through, but that yeah. was very well done. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think that does happen all the time, that there's this assumption, especially in family-owned business, which is this, the sphere that I work in, is that, oh, well, it's my family. Yeah. I don't need an agreement. Like, we're just going to agree. It'll be fine. No, you won't. You won't agree. It's worse if it's family, I think. I think sometimes you're prepared to like treat an arm's length person better than your own family in times of in times of of, of sort of sorrow or, or harshness. And so it's so important to start asking those questions on the shareholder agreement. And I think people assume when they hear shareholder agreement or buy sell or whatever you want to call it, they assume it's this like hundred page omnibus document that includes everything. And and I'll often say to clients, no, it doesn't have to be. It can be as big or as small as you want it to be. And I think you know some of the key key pieces is decision making. How are decisions made within the group? Um, things like what happens if someone dies. The one that people often don't think about is, well, what happens if someone gets injured and cannot work, either for a period of time or for a long time? What if someone gets divorced from their spouse? What if someone goes bankrupt? I mean, I feel like this is when I become the wet blanket, Yoss becomes the wet blanket, and we sit there with clients and go, here's all the horrible things that might happen to you. What's your plan? 
And it's very sad, but it's also very important because if you can negotiate those things when you like each other, yes. way better than everyone just goes to the agreement and they deal with it. And that's the classic phone call I got the other day. Yas, I've got this two brothers, they don't like each other anymore, and now the one guy is going to buy the other guy out. So what can I do? Like, what, you're, you're telling me after the fact. This, this problem was probably festering for years, right? So the classic thing we do as parents, we go, oh, well, we'll just give it to George and John. They'll be fine. I'm dead. Who cares? Right? Yes, I'm dead. Who cares? I won't be there. You know, I hear that one too. You know, so I, I get I get frustrated by that because, um, like you said, just because we're siblings, just because we're related, doesn't mean that we're going to get along business wise. And when I think of the, another scenario that I came across, it's like, well, one brother is doing all the work in the corp, right? You know this. Maybe it's part of your accounting firms right now that's going on, right? And then you've got other people that aren't doing the other side of it. They're more the passive type of shareholder. And so the passive shareholder is going, well, this is a great gig. I get some dividends each year, et cetera, et cetera, not contributing to the growth of the company. And the other guy is going, whoa, wait a second. I'm here to do all these things. And time and time again, there's no shareholder agreement to say, how do I buy you out? What's the terms and conditions, et cetera? So again, it doesn't matter if you're related or not. If you are in a relationship with another party, document it. You need to lay out the rules of the land mm -hmm. to say what happens if. And that's where maybe I, that's where my podcast, you know, sort of uh, to give you an insight into this, mm -hmm. I, I talk about the what ifs way more often. Mm -hmm. Well, and I had a client many years ago who came from the creative realm. He was in marketing and he was with a marketing agency and they were putting together a shareholders agreement and they were rather boohoo about this whole thing. And so he came in one day and he had this like, this blank piece of paper that had little boxes on it. And he handed it to me and he said, Amanda, this is our matrix of doom. And I said, what is a matrix of doom? He goes, I need you to fill in these boxes and I need you to say, if this happens, then do this. If this happens, then do this and cross reference to our shareholder agreement. I said, I can do that. And now I prepare matrix of doom for most of my clients because I, <laughs> I, I don't always call it that because it freaks people out. But I think it's really good that they have this little one pager that says, here's where I go in this long-winded agreement. And here's what it was that we were trying to accomplish. And I think the other thing, and, and, and this will segue into our next topic yeah, of yeah. corporate-owned life insurance. Yeah, yeah. I can do that segue. Um, <laughs> is that it's not just important to have a shareholder agreement in order to deal with um, issues that might arise in terms of tensions, but it's also good because it forces you to think through the practical realities of situations. So even if everybody is getting along, but someone dies or there is an injury and there needs to be a buyout, there is nothing worse than the panic that ensues when the company doesn't have enough money. Now, all of a sudden, we have a cash-strapped company. If you didn't have tension before, you're going to have it now. Everyone's in complete panic mode. They can't hire someone to come in and replace. It's bad. And so sometimes it's helpful to have these shareholder agreement discussions because it gets you thinking, well, if this happens, how are you going to pay for it? Because a pot of money does not fall from the sky when you die, and there's no money tree in your backyard. And so this is when we often look to forms of corporate-owned life insurance. So I'll turn it over to you, Yas. Yeah, like when I think of, it's just, I'm going to use the word liquidity, mm -hmm. right? If I have cash, 
uh, flexibility and options, mm -hmm. very simply. And so when I think of the classic um, buy-sell or shareholder agreement, it says, well, I'm going to buy Amanda out, and I'm going to buy her out over five years. Uh, and I see that time and time again, and it's like, well, okay, if Amanda is, you know, alone doing this business, how does she do that? How does she generate extra cash flow when I'm not there? Maybe I'm the one that has the, the marketing side of it. I know all the clients, whatever it may be. So when you think of liquidity and kind of go, okay, well, maybe we save, you know, maybe Amanda are good savers and we're going to, you know, save for the, you know, $5 million that she's worth. Okay, well, good luck with that. Nice little sinking fund. Yeah, yeah. That's what it's called. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've only seen it once. I had one client that actually had cash in the bank to pay for that once. And I've been doing this a long time. The other one is, again, when I think about, well, Amanda's just going to get a loan. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, right now interest rates are rising, and again, if you had that conversation, who anyone has been practicing back in the '80s, what were interest rates? Double digit. Yeah. So, you know, I do these analysis for clients, and to sort of say, well, here's options. What's our cheapest option? Mm -hmm. What's our most cash-flooded liquidity option? And it does turn to life insurance. It really does, because you know that that money is there. Um, as long as it's sort of documented as well in the, in the shareholder agreement, everyone knows that that policy is there, the liquidity is there, things are taken care of. Well, and I think that's a really good point. I often have clients that come in and see me, and I always ask what their assets are. And so someone will say, oh, I've got this insurance policy. And I say, great, who owns it? Um, well, do you know what it's for? What do you mean what it's for? Well, you must have a purpose for your insurance policy. I mean, no one buys insurance for the sake of buying insurance, or you shouldn't. There should be a purpose for it. And so sometimes there's a bit of a disconnect in terms of who the owners of the policy are and what the policy is being used for. Or I'll have clients that say, this insurance policy is to pay off the mortgage on my home. And so then I look at the policy, and the policy names you know, Sally as the beneficiary. And I said, well, is Sally getting your house? Oh, no, no, Betty's getting the house. Okay, well, how are you making Sally pay the money to Betty to pay off the mortgage? Like, how logistically are we doing this? And so I think it's important, again, to have that, that sort of step back and go, what, are each, what is each policy and what's it for? Or can it be used in a different way um, than it's currently being used? Yeah, like the, the reason why people have corporate insurance is to say, well, if Amanda and I are different ages as well, it can be funded and the corporation funds it, right? I don't have to worry about us taking out extra salary or dividends out of our corpse. You have your policy, I have mine. Well, that's, that's not tax efficient, right? Mm -hmm. um, so when it comes to ownership, then we go, well, it makes sense. We've got an owner as the corp. We've got beneficiary as the corp. And just watch when you have your clients go, well, I'm going to name Sally as the beneficiary. You all know it's a taxable benefit. Stop doing that. <laughs> like, please stop, you know, the CDA will take care of it. And I mean, that we'll, we'll talk about what CDA is, but it's just a matter of that money is going to come in from a tax-free basis and has the opportunity to be paid out tax-free. And again, will that shareholder agreement take care of that or whatever needs you do? Well, I wonder if we should address some deduction issues or deductibility yeah. of insurance, because I'm sure that's something you guys are running into in terms of questions from your clients. I think there's this assumption and I don't know where the assumption came from that insurance premiums are always deductible. 
Because I have clients come in my office and they go, well, yeah, I, c I can deduct that. It makes me think of Schitt's Creek. I don't know if you guys watch Schitt's Creek. Do you remember that episode where he's trying to explain write-offs? Um, and, and that, oh, it's a write-off, Dad. And he's like, well, who do you think pays for it? Well, the government pays for it. Um, <laughs> no matter how many times I see that, I still laugh. Um, but I think, I think premiums for insurance policies are the same thing. There's this idea that, oh, well, they're just deductible. Like, that's just a, it's a cost that's thrown away. I, I love when clients get all, when they hear the word deductible, like their eyes kind of get twinkly or something like that. There's something like going on and I'm like, no, not everything's deductible, you know, at the end of the day. So if you think about insurance premiums, they're not deductible. You know, when you're doing a T2, that's an ad back. Very e easy. It's very clear. There's a lovely line item that says life insurance <laughs> premiums, right? Um, the only way is that we have to go back into the Income Tax Act and say, oh, I've got two lovely provisions there that say, hey, if I want to deduct, I need to meet the criteria. And it's very strict and straightforward. I mean, if you go outside those rules of deductibility of, hey, was it for a from a lender? Was it an actual financial institution? Was the interest already deductible on that mm -hmm. as well. And again, it's a proration of whatever the death benefit is. And you have to look at that calculation of it's the lesser of mm -hmm. those premiums and something called net cost of peer insurance. So it's not as simple as, oh, if I can deduct it, fine. If I'm going to be able to deduct it, it's for purposes of earning income, right? We have to go back to that rule. If I don't have that, if they're not deductible. Mm -hmm. So don't be, a, you know, when clients are saying, well, then I don't want to do it. Well, remember, you're using corporate dollars to fund those premiums, to make those deposits. So again, um, I love the, how the eyes gloss over and glaze over and get excited about deductibility. But again, you're just trying to bring a liquidity instrument into the fold. That's all we're doing. And is there deductibility associated with it? Just go back to the rules of 21 uh, to E.2 and you'll see those there. And we've referenced them also in the materials we gave you. Well, I think when it comes to insurance, I mean, I know when I went to law school, I took insurance law. <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't really learn about what insurance was in insurance law. I'm not really sure what I learned in insurance law, I, now that I'm thinking about it. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I remember coming out into practice and, and you know, you'd be talking to clients and they'd be showing you insurance policies and you'd kind of sit there and like pretend that you knew what was going on because the client kind of assumed that you did. And a couple of years in, I sort of stopped pretending and I started asking questions. And, and I mean, I still, I am not an expert on insurance at all, but I do know enough to know what to look for in the policies. And I use my friends, the insurance advisors, and I ask them to do the work for me and to explain it for me. And so I will often loop them in to the conversation with the client because they know exactly what to look for in the policy. They know exactly why it's been purchased. So loop them into the conversation. Like we're not expected to know the, the you know, sort of the specialties of the other advisors. I'm not supposed to know to a T what accountants do. You're not supposed to know what I do as a lawyer. So it's okay to bring the other advisors in and ask for that help um, and ask them to help explain things to the client so that you're not left standing there trying to figure out what this 20-page policy means and if it's correct. That's not your problem. Um, you're, you can ask for that support and, and that's something I've been doing a lot lately. I think it kind of goes back to the whole collaboration thing is that 
um, when I think about facilitating that insurance, we, we, you need to explain it to clients in a way they understand as well, just like we talked about what the estate freeze does, et cetera. Um, so again, um, ask questions, you know, be, be that in, in, you know, inquisitive person, um, but fundamentally, what is that policy doing? And I, and I think we have to go back to the root of that. And so for this case, buy, sell, it works really well. The liquidity when you need it, when it's most important. And I've been using that saying for many years now. Mm -hmm. That's great. Well, I wonder if we should move into some of our hot topics. Yep. And then we can save some time for questions at the end. Um, one, of the, one of the hot topics we wanted to talk about, and we've been sort of alluding to this throughout the course of our discussions, is that estate planning is not just about, you know, we're saying Frank and Mary. So Frank and Mary, mom and dad come in and see you. You're working on their tax returns. You're helping with their corporate work. Yeah, they've come in to do estate planning, but you need to know more about just than what you're knowing about Frank and Mary. Yeah, and, and that's fundamentally when people think about estate planning, like I said, it's not just about the numbers. I can't get to the numbers until I know about Frank and Mary and about their kids. And it kind of goes back to what we said before about where do the kids live? What do the kids do? Do the kids like each other? Mm -hmm. Like I ask a very direct question. Do you like all your kids? Yeah, and they, and it's okay to pick favorites. Like, is honestly. there a secret grandchild? Yeah, I get an answer yes to this more often than you'd think. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you like the daughter-in-law? Hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Why is everyone in the room going? I don't. Everyone like went really quiet there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like it, you know, like we can do all this planning. But if we don't know if you like each other or not, oh, like it is, it is really hard. You can, you can think of all these elaborate plans, but if I give you shares or if I give you assets and I you know, don't give it to another person, does that lead you into the courtroom? Mm -hmm. And that I think, I mean, when you think of all the court cases that are out there right now, it's not because they're fighting over millions and billions of dollars. The court cases that we've given you as sort of reference material, we're literally talking about a couple of hundred thousand. That's it. Well, and I think too, um, we're seeing a lot more gifting in lifetime now. Yeah. And so we've given you some resources about some, some things to think about there, but you have parents who are, who are giving a gift to one kid but not the other, and there's this unwritten understanding I'm doing air quotes for people listening to this podcast. Um, there's an unwritten understanding that, oh, well, all the, everyone else knows, and that you know, this is going to be a set-off against their inheritance. Well, man, does amnesia hit when mom and dad are gone. Nobody remembers that, and nobody has documented it. And so I think often either the accountants or the lawyers are left trying to piece this together because we haven't been told. So this increasing gifting during lifetime, the importance of having that be documented and understanding whether that's an advance on an inheritance or is that just a gift? Is it a loan? If it's a loan, is it documented? Is there an interest rate? Is it going to be forgiven on death? What is it? I think we have to identify what that is, and it's, that's so important to explain to clients. Yeah, and I had that scenario happen whereby we had, um, we, we gather all the, like in my process, I gather all the assets, I gather all that non-financial stuff of who's in the family or not, and then it got to, again, oh, I've got loans that are, went out to my kids. Next question from Yoss, were they documented? <laughs> oh, God, no, right? But she's already gone, this client's already gone to the lawyer saying, okay, well, I want this and this to happen. But again, 
you haven't taken those steps to say, let's document what was your intent. Um, so a lot of the court cases that are happening now is what was mom's intent? If she gives you the RSP, right? She names you as a beneficiary and then you've got three other kids and the will says, I give everything to those three kids. Is that one child holding it in trust essentially for the estate? So hence that term of resulting trust. So we've sort of referenced for everyone and anyone listening, um, PCOR versus PCOR is your fundamental um, sort of landmark case that basically says if that happens where you name that kid as a beneficiary and there's a will or whatnot that says I give to other children, the presumption is, are you holding it in trust for that estate? And that child needs to prove that it, it actually was a gift from the parent. So was it documented? Hmm. So it's things like that, that again, we're asking advisors, we're, talk we're asking accountants, we're asking again, anyone in the estate planning world, document what your client's intent was, because that's why they're ending up in court. It's not been documented. Well, and that's a really good segue to a discussion on joint ownership of yep. property, because I think there's two categories of property that I'm worried about. The first category is land, and the second category is everything else. And, and I separate those two because, in particular, being from Saskatchewan, our law is quite specific when it comes to joint ownership of land and kind of what happens. And we've given some of the cases um, here, in particular, the Dennison Estate case in Saskatchewan was quite, um, uh, quite profound in terms of its decision on, on joint ownership. But what I've started to see is that the clients will go and they'll add a child onto a bank account, and they'll add the child on to make it easier to help with payments, to do all those things. And some of the financial institutions, at least in Saskatchewan, are sometimes having clients like fill out a document when they add the child on. And the client doesn't always recognize or understand what they're doing when they're filling that document out. But the intent of the document is to say what happens to that account when the original holder dies. Do we have this resulting trust? Does the balance of that account, you know, is it held in trust for the beneficiaries of the estate? Or is it joint with the right of survivorship and it goes to the surviving holder of the account? So many times I've had the client come in and tell me one thing and then I say, did you sign anything with the bank? Oh, I don't know. So then we ask the bank advisor and then they send over the document which says the complete opposite of what the client just told me to put in the will. So important to get that sorted out because it is all about intent and having consistent intent and to make sure that the beneficiaries all know that that's what the plan is. You can avoid tons, tons of money in litigation. And then when you're talking about land, you have to be so careful because for example, in Saskatchewan, we operate under the Torrens system of land registration. And so once you're on title, like you're on title, the only way to get you off of title is you have to agree. Um, it, it happened, it's done, and you're sort of presumed to have that full registered and beneficial ownership. And so if, if that's not the intention, then there needs to be some documentation prepared. And now with the new trust reporting rules, I think it was mentioned this morning in the, the case update um, from Feleski Flynn, that if you have an original title holder who adds a kid onto title for the purposes of avoiding probate, do you now have a bare trust? And 
Yeah, pretty sure you do. And you're gonna have to do a filing. And I know we all have tons of those on our desk, right, that we have to start thinking about. So just sort of understanding the consequences because then when someone passes away and they're phoning you up to say, well, now who owns this property? Well, if it's not documented, who's reporting the disposition? Who's reporting gains and losses? Who's reporting the income from that property while the income is coming in? All of that needs to be consistent. Yeah, and people don't realize even the tax consequences, right? As you know, oh, I'm just going to add my kid on. And, it, and again, it's, well, again, if, if that person passes away, depending on if it's joint right of survivorship or, or, or tenants in common, it goes to the estate one, one way versus another way. Um, and so people aren't realizing, well, another, another file on my desk. Parent has multiple real estate properties and various children are sitting there as the other joint owner. And again, when you look at the tax bill associated with those, um, that hasn't been assessed because again, it was just papered because again, did they have a conversation with their friend saying, well, you can save probate if you do that. <laughs> so it's, it comes into more of complexity, the family side of things. Are you exposing that asset to creditors? Mm -hmm all those things like that, and you can't just get it back. And that's sort of where, you know, that Dunnison case that Amanda has posted on there as well. Yeah, lots of stories of grandmas and grandpas who've added grandkids onto title and then, you know, the grandkid didn't do what they wanted them to do. They took off and went to Australia or something for school. And so grandma and grandpa said, well, we're mad at you now. We want to pull you off title. Well, you can't. <laughs> or parents that get mad at kids, those kinds of scenarios. I think it is important to just understand the finality of that. And I mean, for probate planning, probate fees differ across the country. But in Alberta, I think it maxes out at $400, regardless of the value of the estate. Um, in Saskatchewan, it's $7 on every $1,000 of assets. Um, but they're looking at a whole revamp right now. I think Manitoba went down to zero. Yeah. So, you know, to do this type of probate planning, yes, there are still provinces where there is a large probate fee, or sometimes there might be a land transfer tax that you're dealing with, especially in BC. Um, there are sometimes reasons for this. Um, but if you're in one of the low probate provinces, like, oh, don't probate plan. It's not, it's not worth it, right, for, for what your savings are going to be at the end of the day. Yeah, I, I, it's a good point because, yeah, like things like Alberta are like 525. Like when people talk about probate planning, it's not a discussion in provinces like Alberta, now the Manitobas, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, so then you kind of look at your financial tools and kind of go, well, then can I just name a beneficiary, right? Look for ways that you can do that. So again, look for the life insurance. Um, check your non-registered investments because um, ones that are mutual funds, you cannot name a beneficiary. So when we gather net worth statements and people have large net um, non-registered portfolios and they say, well, I only have one child. Well, why wouldn't you look to a segregated fund whereby I can name a beneficiary? Because I can't do that in the mutual fund world, right? And we made that recommendation to one of the clients. Um, the investment broker said, no, you're not doing that. Um, because they didn't deal with segregated funds. Mm. So there was a concern that there was a loss of you know, assets under management. Um, so it wasn't for the best interest of the client. So that's where I wanted to kind of close off that conversation about beneficiary designations. They work powerfully um, where they work. It just depends on your client scenario. 
Well, and, and Yas, I'm just looking at, at our time here, yep. and I'm wondering if this might be an appropriate time to maybe take some questions from the crowd. Oh, We've been yammering on for <laughs> a, an hour. You guys must be sick of listening to us. And I'm hoping we've spurred some questions. I know there's some online questions potentially. Would you like to start with those first? Sounds good. Uh, the first question is, does putting a property into child A's name through joint, joint title protect the property from child adult child B, the main goal that adult child B doesn't inherit this property? Oh, well, uh, yes. I mean, technically it would, um, but there's other ways to accomplish that goal. And, and feel free to jump in, Yoss, if you... But I think you can also state very clearly in your will, I want this property to go to this child. I specifically do not want it to go to this other child, and here's the reason why. So that even if there was a claim that was filed, that would be very strong evidence. Keep in mind, if wherever this question is coming from, if it's coming from BC, for example, your dependence relief legislation in BC is very broad. So that's the legislation that's saying who gets to have an interest in an estate. Um, it's, it's extremely broad in BC. So it's not only spouses, but it's also children, but regardless of their age. So you can be 60 and still be a child and have an entitlement to a piece of the estate. So if you go ahead and you make a will in BC and you give all your property to child one because you don't like child two, you, you are opening yourself up for the potential that there could be a court application by child two saying, hey, I'm a dependent, I want a piece of the pie, and they could be successful. So again, documenting your intentions is important. Yeah, it's, it's basically WESA. I have a right to make a claim against the estate as a spouse or as a child. And so that, that is a real concern. And that's where, again, what was your intent? Are you doing it just to save probate? Or again, are you using it to say, I only want this child to get it? And, and, and have those conversations. I guess when I do my planning, and it's weird sometimes, I actually have G1 and G2 in the room. And it really depends on that client or, client or family situation. So just something to think about uh, in the planning process. Question I have is, can you comment on, on Alberta for the exact same thing about dependency? Yeah, so every, in Alberta you have testamentary autonomy, right? You have the ability to say, I'm going to do this and that. Um, but there is maintenance support whereby uh, spouses and children can make a claim under the equivalent of WESA under Part 5 um, that you can do that. So again, but we do have testamentary autonomy in Alberta. The only thing is that you can't just say, I'm um, excluding a child because of um, religious reasons or I don't like the person they married and those things like that. That again goes on a morality type of thing that is consistent across all provinces. Yeah, great question. Uh, we have another online question. We talked about the problem with intergenerational wealth in Canada earlier today. What are your thoughts? And do you encourage clients to donate to charities? Oh, I love this question. Thank you. Uh, can I start? You can. I, got I mean, that was one of the things we were going to talk about, but we didn't get to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Great question. We did not plant that question. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so when I think of this intergenerational wealth transfer that's happening, we're not talking a few hundred thousand dollars. We're talking billions, aren't we? Billions based on baby boomers or what age they are and millennials, etc. We have to be prepared for that. And again, if you're not having those discussions, then that's the reason why we're here. Let's collaborate. Let's have those discussions together. Um, it will affect your practice. So again, I go back to each of you that you may have dealt with one person, the patriarch of, your, of that family, 
And most logically and statistically, I'll show you, women live longer than men. Wealth will transfer to women. And so we need to be connected with everyone in that family, um, especially if they're in the business, et cetera, to make sure that everyone is in that discussion. So I go back to my, you know, I don't want my wife to know about the painting of my house. Um, we, we need to be prepared for those conversations. And again, good estate planning involves and prepares the people that will inherit the wealth. I will make the comment about the charitable before sure. I pass it on. Go ahead. Um, that's what I do. I, I, um, I'm a member of CAGP. If you're not a member, it is, um, we, we talk about clients that want to be philanthropic, um, that they want to give back to the community. Um, I, I have that on my sort of internal checklist and there's really effective ways to give back to the community. And I say really briefly to people is, you have three choices with your estate. There's your beneficiaries, your heirs, et cetera. There's the community. And then there's CRA. <laughs> you know, CRA, I know they're gonna come up eventually, to, you know, they're not efficient, right? Like if I give money to the government, CRA, then eventually it should flow to, you know, efficient programs and all those things like that to build our communities. But I think there's a better way to do it. I think there's a better way in our planning process to really give uh, at the end of the day. And I, I'll kind of take up the torch on that, talking about the charities piece. So we've given a couple of, I think, um, I think a couple of resources um, on our sheet about if you're trying to figure out kind of how to navigate your way through charitable donations. I've got a couple podcast episodes on it and some supports. But I think with clients, what I'm noticing is there's a lot of discussion about giving during lifetime. Um, in particular, the increasing um, number of donor-advised funds that we're seeing, where clients can, can sort of deal with large gains on their investments now. Yes, we still trigger the gains, but we, we take those investments, we throw them into a donor-advised fund, we get our tax break at the time, and they can actually work with their family to decide what happens to those funds on a go-forward basis. So I have some clients that, you know, they have an annual meeting with their kids and they all sit down and they decide, okay, well, what are we doing this year? And you can leave those directions in your will. So it becomes a part of your family planning. I, I also think that it's, it's sometimes cool to use charitable giving as a bit of an incentive in legacy trust planning. So I've seen this happen as well where, where I've got clients that are, have large amounts of money and they're doing these long-term trusts in their wills that are intended for you know, G2, G3, like all the way down. And, and we're not really worried about tax at this point. We know we're gonna be taxed high, but there's this intention to keep this piece of the pie for future generations. And I've had clients say, well, listen, I'm prepared to give my child you know, a distribution each year out of this trust, but I wanna make sure they're doing some good with what they're getting. And so this requirement for them to either be donating their time, donating funds, and there's a matching component. So I've seen that as another cool way of using charitable donations. And then of course as well, like you said, at the, when you die, your money can go a bunch of different ways. And it doesn't have to be an all or nothing. But I find when I have clients who once they've exhausted their initial family, they look at me and say, well, I don't know. Because I'll say, what happens if, if you're all in a plane to Disneyland? And you all go at the same time. And we know lots of families do that. Where do you want your money to go? And they'll say, well, I mean, my parents don't need it. My siblings don't need it. I really don't like that nephew, so I don't want him to get it. And then I kind of walk through what would happen with the legislation if they don't have a beneficiary named. And they say, well, where do, where do I give my money to? And that's usually when I say, well, have you thought about charitable giving? 
because it's it's sort of an opportunity. We, we, we don't know if it will ever happen, if that scenario will happen, but that's a great way um, to bring it in. And so we can look at that in lifetime, we can look at that in death, and of course there are tax benefits to the estate in death, um, and there are tax benefits in lifetime to doing gifts. So. Yeah, I think there's a combination. So we've done dual solutions for clients. Um, it's just a matter of, they may not be philanthropic now, but they may be in the future, right? Uh, and we're seeing a, a new generation saying, I wanna give back to the community too as well. So that was a long answer, I know. But I mean, as you can see, there's so much opportunity, I think, um, especially if you do wanna have clients tie into the charitable giving side of things. Well, that is all we have time for today, folks. Thank you so much for listening. I hope we gave you some food for thought or at least made you laugh. Please see the show notes for any resource material that we referenced throughout the episode and to find out more about my amazing guest today. And if you'd like to learn more about any of the topics that we covered on today's podcast or about other topics relating to tax in general, I do invite you to sign up for my monthly newsletter, Musings of a Tax Chick, and follow me on Instagram. My handle is at tax.chick. If you enjoy this podcast, I would really appreciate it if you could leave a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and also click subscribe so you make sure you never miss a new episode. Please note that the views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast episode belong solely to the speakers and are not necessarily the views of the speaker's employer, organization, committee, or other group or individual. In addition, the information provided and discussed in this podcast is not legal advice. We encourage you to consult with your legal advisor for specific advice.